get started now and not worry about it for sure. Attention, please. I'm Rick Herman, the uh, director here at the Rashan Center, and I'd like to welcome all of you, and I'd like to thank you all for coming out on a cold and snowy night. I think that uh, it's testament to John Mueller and the, uh, as Randy said, he never disappoints. So uh, we're really glad to, just to put the pressure on. This is the second in a series this winter we're doing on books. They were produced last year by colleagues here at the center. Uh, we met a few weeks ago and talked about Carol Fink's book that came out with Cambridge uh, last year. And in February, we're going to meet and talk about uh, Peter Hahn's new book uh, that also just came out last year. And I hope we'll be able to do this uh, every year when each of you uh, bring out something interesting and important for all the rest of us to know about. Um, <clears throat> tonight... We decided to shift it, actually, to an evening so we'd have a little more time and allow a colleague to comment on what John has written, to maybe provoke all of us and get us into a, a more uh, fulsome discussion. And <clears throat> actually, the idea for this evening was stimulated by Jeffrey Parker, who phoned me up, or maybe it was an email, I don't recall, and said, I was just listening to this radio, and we have to do this event about <clears throat> about John's book. And he said, and I'll volunteer myself to be the discussant. And so I was grateful for that offer. I don't know that John will be, but we will see. <laughs> Jeffrey, of course, can be an intimidating uh, critic. He is the Andreas Dorpelin Professor of History here at Ohio State. As many of you know, he's taught at St. Andrews. British Columbia, Illinois, and Yale. 
Before coming here, he's the author of The Military Revolution, Military Innovation and the Rise of the West, that Cambridge published. The author of The Grand Strategy of Philip II, that Yale published. He, not long ago, was knighted by the King of Spain for his study of the history of Spain and military affairs. So, John, you have, you have your uh, work cut out. And you should know, John, that whatever Jeffrey says, it was your book that provoked him. So take some solace in that. For those of you who might not know, John Mueller came to Ohio State in the year 2000. He's the Wayne Woodrow Hayes Chair of National Security Strategy here at the Mershon Center. Before that, he had been a professor at Rochester and <clears throat> I guess was there quite a while, having now been 40 years since he completed his PhD. I looked at his Vita this afternoon. So I just hope I'm as active at uh, 40 years into my career as John Mueller is bringing out, I don't know how many, which book of these many books he's written. I looked at my shelf this afternoon <clears throat> and I found six. So those are just the ones on war. I don't know about all the other ones that he may have looked. And he's, of course, written on other subjects. He wrote a book not too long ago on democracy and capitalism, arguing that um, essentially democracy was overrated and capitalism underappreciated, if I, if I got the gist of it uh, correctly, and that he had substantial confidence in people to figure out basically how to navigate everyday life if just they could get free of the romance and the glorification of politics that leaders keep uh, promoting and shoving at them. And as I thought about what I'd say to introduce John tonight, that was the theme that I think that I see, or at least I pull out from a lot of his work. It's taking the blush off the rose or tarnishing the romance <clears throat> that's often inflated when people talk and write about politics, and <clears throat> particularly about war. I think the book that many of us know, and in some ways I see this as the, uh, a bookend in a sense, called The Retreat from Doomsday, The Obsolescence of Major Power War, was published in 1989, where John argued that leaders of Europe had finally figured out that there wasn't uh, romance, glory, and honor to be had in war, but rather it was inefficient and relatively uh, ineffective way of generating real status, which comes from wealth and economic well-being, and then he assumed, he assumed that, <clears throat> at least in Europe, war was, if not obsolete, quickly <laughs> retreating to obsolescence because, like dueling, people had found better ways uh, to manage conflict and uh, their inevitable uh, disputes. <clears throat> now, he never argued that war was obsolete. He argued the great power war was becoming obsolete, and he hoped at the end of that book that that migration of thinking would extend to the third world. In 1994, he wrote a book on the Gulf War that argued it wasn't gravitating fast enough or migrating fast enough, and it wasn't being helped along by some presidents who were continuing to uh, appeal to romantic uh, mobilization uh, to promote their activities. And I suspect it wasn't only presidents, but also much of the academy that in the post-war era, post-Cold War era, was describing our environment as ones of identity wars wars over national honor and cultural dignity that may have spurred John <clears throat> into thinking about taking the romance out of ethnic war. And with that, it seems to me that maybe this book was a, a, a call uh, 
who would be worried about that. Well, is ethnic war a reasonable description or a dangerous romance? But regardless, if we've seen the obsolescence of war, now we'll see the remnants of war. So, John? Thank you. Thanks uh, for showing up and missing the inaugural. Um, <laughs> Thanks, David. <laughs> which, which costs a lot more than this dinner. Uh, this is uh, the, the book. Let me uh, go. There's some uh, this actually isn't the cover of the book. It's the original version that sent me by Cornell University Press. And I sent it to my daughter. And she said, you got to be kidding. You got to be. No, it's... Remnants of War, John Mueller, picture of John Mueller. <laughs> so, uh, you know, all, all this picture. Uh, the, the picture is from Bosnia, and it actually suits the book extremely well. Uh, there's this, you see, first of all, this guy in the front drinking hard liquor uh, with a smirk on his face. Uh, you know, a typical uh, thug that per mainly perpetrated that war, and then behind it, of course, eventually the devastation that's caused by people like that. Um, anyway, I, I passed on the, uh, the view to the, the, that my, my daughter's concern to the editors and suggested to solve the problem, they could try to write justify my name, put my, put my name above the, above the uh, uh, or uh, finally just have a tasteful, this, you know, <laughs> In, in, in general, he liked the last suggestion best. I have to uh, but um, but they actually put, they ended up putting the name above the title, so she won in some sense. Um, at any rate, the book tries to cover you know basically all wars since the year 1000 or so. Um, and what I want to do is sort of go through the, some of the arguments in the book extremely briefly, and then mainly talk about stuff that actually comes out of the book. Um, uh, the, the real remarkable decline of warfare over the last few years that no one has basically noticed almost um, and uh, try to s speculate it into the future about that. So let me do the book part first. Um, the, um, basically what I try to set up in this is uh, it's very much a, a bottom-up perspective on war, uh, looking at combatants. Who are the people that you get to fight? Um, and the argument basically is there's, there's two kinds of uh, uh, tracks, uh, what I call disciplined war, in, in which you have combatants who are willing to die for what they're fighting for, uh, and criminal combatants, or criminal warfare, in which you tend to have mainly criminals. Uh, it was generally the idea that if you're fighting a war, the question is how do you recruit people well, the, uh, to fight the war? Well, a logical thing, obviously, would be to go to people who... Uh, commit violence and, and or enjoy violence and or profit from violence in civilian life and a, a tendency to pick up thugs and criminals. Uh, it turns out that gen they generally tend not to be very good combatants when, it, when, when push comes to shove because their motto is, of course, not duty, honor, country, but take the money and run. Um, and uh, that tends to happen. Anyway, just to sketch this, my argument basically uh, is that there's a form of di uh, disciplined warfare uh, in which you can start out with terrorism uh, which is not warfare, but basically individual or small-scale violence. If it gets big enough and organized enough, then it be basically becomes a form of war, of which there have been two kinds. Conventional war, so the standard thing that most books have been written about, about by war, conventional war, Clausewitzian war, regimental war, with things with battles in them. 
Um, and uh, then, there's, there's, then, there's, then there's unconventional war, which is vastly, vastly more common, uh, which is a primitive war, guerrilla war, partisan war, insurgency war, people's war, and so forth. Uh, also disciplined, however. Uh, in the case of criminal war, what you tend to do is have criminals come into combat in two ways. Uh, one is they are hired as, um, as um, mercenaries uh, and often paid on commission, i.e. What they, whatever they can loot. Uh, and the other is you sometimes get bandit gangs, criminal gangs get big enough so the state is sufficiently weak, they're capable of basically toppling it. Uh, and so they become, we call them, I mean, instead of calling bandit gangs or criminal gangs, you call them warlords, for example. So those are sort of two ways that criminals get into war. In general, when you have disciplined forces against criminal forces, the disciplined forces tend to win uh, because they don't, uh, they, they do stand and fight. Um, okay, uh, covering a lot of stuff very quickly, my argument with respect to wars among developed countries, mainly Europe, uh, is as follows. Uh, that what happened was that um, it, it, for a long period of time, there was, within Europe, basically war is almost a continuous activity. It was happening everywhere, every time, both civil war uh, and international war. Uh, you can look at the, you know, any of the history plays of Shakespeare, and there's a zillion wars going on, most of them civil, actually, in some form or other. Um, and then um, what, what happened was states got built, and what they did effectively was uh, begin to control particularly civil war uh, by uh, uh, developing effective police and military um, and uh, sort of decriminalizing the situation. Uh, they also found then that, that they could now control war. And so they tend to go to war. The wars now tend to be international wars mostly. Uh, and they, they could do them uh, when they wanted to. And so war tended to be less common, uh, but it tended to be uh, very brutal frequently when it actually was taking place. Um, then my argument is at the time of World War I, there was a rise of war aversion. Uh, so they controlled war. They got into World War I rather willingly, and then they decided they didn't like it very much for various reasons. Um, uh, before World War I, the, the, uh, and my argument basically is the changing attitude toward war. Uh, before World War I, it was extremely common to find statements like this by the great peacenik uh, Immanuel Kant. A prolonged peace favors the predominance of a mere commercial spirit and with it a debasing self-interest, cowardice, and effeminacy, and it tends to degrade the character of a nation. Um, five years later, he wrote Perpetual Peace, arguing that the world was going toward perpetual peace, but what he didn't say in that is that he presumably thought that that was a disaster uh, because we'd get a, we'd a period of peace would just have self-interest, cowardice, and effeminacy. Uh, all of which I think are uh, all of which I think are basically good things. Uh, uh, I mean, if self-interest basically means you know you work very hard to produce something that someone else, uh, for your own wealth, produ uh, and you, you produce something that someone else wants freely to buy. I think that's not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, in the case of cowardice, if you think that uh, you know uh, uh, finding uh, a reputation in the cannon's mouth uh, is not necessarily the best way to get it, then maybe that cowardice isn't all that bad. And if effeminacy basically means indicating that, you know, other people actually do occasionally have feelings, then maybe effeminacy isn't such a bad thing. Um, but at any rate, uh, there was a turn at, the, at that time. It's very, very easy to find statements like this by, by not just, you know, militarist types, you know, uh, uh, but, but ordinary uh, writers, poets, um, journalists, uh, philosophers, uh, novelists, um, uh, and and uh, basically that, that substantially stops uh, within Europe, not within Japan, but within Europe after World, uh, at, at World War I and the move to try to get rid of war. Okay, since that time, 
um, covering a lot of stuff, which I'd be glad to go into more later if you want. Uh, there's been basically uh, four ways that developed countries have used war. One, of course, is World War II, uh, which in my opinion was mainly started by Adolf Hitler and probably would not have started in Europe had he not been around. Uh, the Japan War was, however, in the cards. Uh, that's now no longer with us, World War II. Uh, another, obviously, is colonial war. Many of the European uh, uh, places had colonies, and there was a problem of decolonization, which often uh, involved warfare. A third is various kinds of wars having to deal with the Cold War. Uh, and then finally, which I'll talk about more later, is policing wars, wars that developed nations used to try to police the world, uh, which have been tried variously and possibly decliningly since the end of the Cold War. Um, okay. Uh, the thing I want to uh, indicate, however, is that uh, by far the most important statistic in the history of warfare uh, is zero, uh, which is the number of wars between developed states since 1945. Um, there's, a there's a couple of places where you might uh, suggest that, that's, uh, that, that there's been, you know, like the, the chief exception to that probably is the Soviet taking uh, basically a, a colonial war against Hungary in 1956. Uh, Kosovo is the bizarre war in Kosovo is a problem and so forth. So there's some, some place where around the edges you might have problems on that. But uh, what hap what's happened is that there's been this astounding period in Europe, in which the good old-fashioned wars, you know, Franco-Prussian wars, simply haven't happened. Uh, somebody uh, who I don't know, by name Brad DeLong, has calculated when's the last time there's been this much peace on the Rhine, uh, over the Rhine River. Uh, and uh, there, it's now been since, obviously, since World War One, since World War Two, that an army has gone across the Rhine. And the last time there's been such a period, you have to go back to the second century B.C. Um, so that's an extremely important fact, it seems to me. Um, you know, the French and the Germ France and Germany are filled with extremely clever people, and for centuries they figured out ways to get into war with each other. Uh, now, if you advocate a war between France and Germany, um, the idea will not only not seem so much uh, wrong or stupid or uh, inefficient, but absurd. The whole idea of a war between France and Germany is basically absurd. It doesn't even come up uh, into our calculations. Okay. Now, what I want to deal with, particularly now, is the post-Cold War period, so I covered about 990 years pretty quickly there. Um, uh, and, um, and I want to deal with sort of what, why I think war may be uh, vanishing. Uh, this is, a, uh, this is uh, from a, uh, a set of analyses by a guy named Chris, uh, Christian Gledich, building on other uh, techniques. Um, and he has uh, tried to calculate the number of wars that there have been since World War II. <laughs> and essentially divided into three kinds of wars. One is civil war, another is imperial and colonial war, and the third is international war. If you start at the bottom, the black stuff down here are the uh, international wars. Some of these are fairly trivial uh, and very questionable, actually. Uh, for example, 1993 has a war between Croatia and Bosnia. Um, and it, there's some ways you can define that as being an international war, but at any rate, um, uh, it's obviously not the big mover here. Uh, the gray area here uh, is the number of imperial and colonial wars, which obviously don't exist anymore because colonies don't exist anymore. Uh, and the big enchilada, obviously, uh, is civil war, um, and, which has had this extreme increase up to the, uh, at the end of uh, uh, the Cold War, uh, even bigger after the Cold War, and then a decline, which seemed to be leveling out in the mid-90s, uh, and then now in the last very few years uh, has dropped uh, very low. 
Uh, if you use this definition, I want to go into the definition more, in the last two or three years, in 2002 and 2003, there are only five wars in the whole world. Um, uh, and these are it. And it's possible, using this definition, that there's maybe only two today. Uh, one is the uh, obviously the war in Iraq that, t that covers all our uh, headlines. And the other is the war um, in Sudan, which by this definition may not even be a war. Let me do the definition. Because uh, that's important. I, I looked at a lot of definitions of what a war is, um, and this is the this is the, what I've got here is basically a fairly standard one in political science. Uh, but I'll, I'll show you other other ways of looking at war and, and showing you a pattern on that as well. But this is one that seems to me most reasonable. A war basically is a thing in which you've got people fighting each other, combatants. They don't have to be in uniform, uh, but they have to be really slinging at each other, combatants on both sides, uh, and there has to be a significant amount of violence. When uh, David Singer and uh, the historian Melvin Small tried to, their first study in the, whenever it was early 70s, uh, to try to sort of get a database of wars, uh, what they decided was they, want, they, didn't, they want, didn't want to have like riots be considered wars. So the question is how low should the bat body count go uh, before you stop calling it a war? And they decided on a thousand battle deaths. Um, a thousand being a round number, uh, but I think to them that probably was a very low number because you're thinking of World War II, World War One, Vietnam War, uh, which was just ending at that time, Korean War, Franco-Prussian War, whatever, uh, where you know a thousand is ludicrously low. Uh, and, you know these wars are vastly bigger, and that and they're mostly we're dealing with international wars. Um, at any rate, they defined a, a, a thousand battle deaths over the duration of the dispute, um, and that's a definition I basically want to deal with. Um, battle deaths are de uh, deaths, or sometimes called battle-related deaths. It consists of combatants who die on both sides, and it consists of civilians who get caught in a crossfire, collateral damage. But it doesn't include civilians who might die because the water system gets screwed up or because they're mass massacred by, uh, you know, uh, bands or, or, or uh, other things. At any rate, so what you're dealing with is, uh, is that kind of a, a calculation. Uh, anyway, using that definition, we're down to about five wars as of 2003, and possibly lower now. Um, okay, let me uh, try to defend that definition a little bit. It seems to me that uh, for, uh, you can get uh, conflicts in which you have battle deaths under a thousand a year, and what I would tend to want to say is, okay, don't call them a war. In fact, the people who studied this, mostly, uh, particularly some data uh, collections in Scandinavia, uh, have calculated, have done data for less than a thousand. They don't call them wars; they call them armed conflicts, uh, or you call them riots, you call terrorism, you call brutal police, you call it criminal predation. Uh, but it seems to me that below a thousand, uh, what you're dealing with is quite low sort of violence by normal war standards, um, and uh, that definition basically suggests you shouldn't. Uh, uh, you know, you should, I think you should call it something else. That's my argument. Um, now, in addition, you do have places where you may not have a, a thousand battle deaths, but you have a terrific number of civilian deaths. Um, and what I would suggest on that is you basically call them something else. Genocide, mass killing, massacre, ethnic cleansing, terrorism, uh, criminal predation. For example, to use the Sudan case, now the reason I think it may not be a war, there, there, there are two combatant sides. There are the... the uh, um, the Sudanese government and its, its hired thugs. Uh, they're not really hired, they're certainly put into action and then they pay themselves uh, by, by uh, looting. Um, and there's also a, a liberation force and there's some conflict between them. And maybe that's got to the point of a thousand a, a year. 
but the main cause of violence is the is the is basically ethnic cleansing, or as Powell calls it, uh, genocide. Uh, and it seems to me to call it that. Auschwitz wasn't war. Auschwitz was genocide. Uh, ethnic cleansing is ethnic cleansing. It, it's basically an army, uh, criminal or not, coming upon a bunch of civilians and killing them or forcing them off their land, and sometimes into death because just the process of abrupt migration can be lethal. Uh, but that's what it is. It isn't war. They're not warring on the civilians. They're basically persecuting and pre preying on them. Um, so uh, let me give you one example why also why I think the thousand deaths are uh, a good thing uh, uh, to deal with. Uh, in 1982, there was a war in the Falklands, um, which uh, in which I didn't quite make it. Uh, didn't quite have a thousand battle deaths, uh, but they, you know, uh, everybody wants to call it a war, so they do. Uh, so they add a few, you know, round off uh, to a thousand. Um, and so we count that as a war. But the thing that's impressive about the Falklands is here you had an international war between Argentina and Britain in which um, a, 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 about a thousand people died. And we tend to treat it as sort of a comic opera war. It isn't really almost a real war. We sort of suggest that the thousand threshold is one uh, that, uh, I mean, it's obviously one of the people who killed in it. It obviously is not a comic opera. Uh, but it's nonetheless a, uh, 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 it's not a real war in some respects. So I'd like to use that. Uh, some interesting statistics about the Falklands. Uh, there are 1,900 people there, uh, as well as 600,000 sheep. <laughs> and the cost of the United Kingdom is it comes about $3 million per Falklander uh, for, fight, for fighting the war and then fortifying through 1989. Uh, and that comes out of $5 a <laughs> And the uh, number of troops that are there now uh, lately is about 2,000. There's probably more troops defending the Falklands from the rampaging Argentinians than there are people. On the other hand, I, uh, unless the population has gone up either of sheep or of people. Anyway, the point is that this is, this is a bizarre, this is basically sort of a bizarre war. And some of it is because it was so unintense. So that's why it seems to me that 1,000 makes a certain amount of sense. Okay. Let me give you other statistics, though, because that's certainly not the only one way of defining it. This is the frequency of armed conflict. The same people doing the calculations, I'll say, okay, let's take, take away the, th we'll keep the thousand thing, we'll call those wars, but let's also count all the armed conflicts in which only 25 people die. In other words, if you have a war, uh, you have some sort of armed conflict, they don't call it a war again, uh, and, and all they require is that 25 people get killed. Now, in the Watts riot, for example, 1964, something like 40 people were killed. I mean, this is, 25, of course, is an incredibly small number. Uh, and, and in this case, obviously, you get many more armed conflicts than wars. But the pattern I've shown you is basically the same. This only goes up to the year 2000. Um, they have basically four things here. Uh, the top, I guess I mean, sorry, this is all cumulative. The top are what they call internationalized intrastate wars, which are basically civil wars that have a fair amount of outside intervention. Again, you have this big bulk of stuff, which is civil wars. You have here is colonial wars, which are dying out. And then the uh, relatively small fringe of international wars that have happened during that period of time. Uh, by the way, there's, uh, uh, what has happened, of course, in the, in the 60s and on, there's been a substantial increase in the number of countries with decolonization and all. Uh, but I don't think that, but they, and you can recalculate any of these things controlling for that, and you still get the, basic, the same basic pattern. Uh, though it's attenuated some. Basically, sort of steady state right after the war, after World War II, then a uh, big increase to the, at the end of the Cold War and a substantial drop-off. This is what I first started with, and that's why I thought, well, it's leveling off. And so I was sort of surprised to push it into the 21st century and find it uh, going lower. Um, these are civil wars um, only. 
by uh, by study at Stanford from University of Chicago by uh, Jim Fearon and uh, David Layton. Uh And these are their calculations. They define a civil war as a war in which at least a thousand battle deaths are occurred over the um, uh, course of the combat with an average of at least 100 per year. Uh, the problem with this is that if you get sort of terrorism type, which is what I want to call Northern Ireland, though Jeffrey may have other things to say on this, um, essentially what happens is you have sort of low level, low level, low level, low level, and then eventually you get to the point where the total number of people are killed are a thousand, and then the whole period becomes a, considered to be a war. So what you get is incredibly long wars at which it, in many times basically virtually nothing is happening uh, during this time. Uh, you could, in fact, have a hundred years war in which no one got killed for 99 of the years. If you had, if you had a war uh, and 10,000 people got killed in the first year, then went on for 99 more years, but no one else got killed, you'd say it was a hundred-year war, uh, in which 99% of the time no one was killed. So I don't, that's why I don't particularly like the, that way of looking at it. Uh, but nonetheless, even defining it this way, what you get is obviously that very same pattern, a big rise and then a, a remarkable decline uh, up to 2002. Uh, which is where their data end. Um, okay, uh, these are the uh, 20, they, they, as opposed to four or five or six or ten or whatever, which, which I might have, they have 27 civil wars active in 2002. Uh, and these are the groups. Two of them came to an end that year, two bad ones, Angola and Sri Lanka. Um, and uh, what, you, what, you, what you have here, for example, did you know that there had been war going on for 55 years in Burma? Uh, in, that, in that year, 220 people apparently died uh, from, from that or that there's a war in the northeast of India that's been going on for, since 1952, uh, and, but a basically very low level uh, overall. Some of the wars basically have almost nobody being killed in 2002. Um, and uh, the number that are killed where there's over 1,000 is basically roughly what, what, what I showed you earlier, just a handful, five or six or whatever. Um, and the, 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 the total numbers tend to be sort of vague and, uh, um, and variable uh, uh, and changeable. In fact, some of these numbers have changed that I got from a website uh, from, uh, uh, have changed within the last six months because they're constantly reevaluating so forth. But anyway, the point is what you got is a whole bunch of civil wars, so-called, one in which three people died, for example, in that year, uh, and, uh, and very few which went above 1,000. If you define a war as 2,000 dead in one year, which wouldn't be unreasonable, uh, you get uh, extremely few, obviously. So anyway, that's uh, a definitional problem. One more thing. Oh, this is also another civil war uh, data that, uh, that David Collier, Paul Collier is doing at the World Bank, and this is again only civil war, same pattern, big rise after decolonization of the year, and then a distinct drop uh, by in the mid-90s. Uh, and this is also a German data set, which basically gets the same pattern. This stuff down here is the civil wars. Um, okay, finally uh, on this, I want to just talk about uh, data in which you have um, uh, 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 intensity included. What I've been doing is just counting wars, whether they're intense or not. And this is a data set coming out of the University of Maryland in which, they do, in which they factor in the intensity of the war. So they take the war and they, and they give it a sign of the score from 1 to 7, depending on its intensity. If it's very low, body, death, damage, whatever, it gets a 1. If it's pretty very intense, it gets a 7. So it's, you, know, you don't just multiply it by number of deaths, uh, but they do have that kind of a pattern uh, going for it. Anyway, the same, again, the same pattern basically holds. It's a little bit difficult to read, so let me walk you through it a bit here. Uh, th this line down here is the number of interstate wars uh, and intensity. And what you can see, this, that's this orange or whatever color, this sort of putrid green. 
um, down here, and you get a, a rise in the 1980s. That's not because there are a lot of wars, but there's one very big war, which is the Iran-Iraq war, uh, very costly, so it goes up. Uh, the purple line is the total of inter international wars plus colonial wars, and that is uh, so that what you get this gap in here is basically the number of colonial wars, which of course basically end when colonialism does in the 70s. Uh, then they have what they call societal warfare, basically civil warfare, uh, and that's this blue line here, which reaches all the way up here again. You get the same pattern, obviously, peaking in the early 90s, uh, and then a substantial <laughs> drop-off uh, afterwards. And the green line is the total of all warfare combined together. So, no matter how you look at it, no matter how you define it, um, there has been a remarkable drop-off in the last 10, 15 years. Um, now, the book basically tries to look at three kinds of wars. Um, and I'll just go through this very quickly. Uh, there's, uh, there, uh, there's criminal wars. Uh, that uh, many of these uh, civil wars in particular have been basically dominated by criminals. Criminals coming in in the same way they did in the olden days. Uh, these are some criminals. Um, <laughs> actually, these are Danish criminals, just to show you, you know, how universal I can be. Um, uh, these, on the other hand, are Serbian criminals. Um, uh, the guy in the front, uh, Arkan, has uh, more recently been assassinated in Belgrade, gangland style. But anyway, uh, at any rate, uh, uh, many of the thugs come into the war as mercenaries, working for a government in one form or other, um, which is basically the Sudan, is, which happened after my book, basically, is a good case in point. Um, the Sudanese government apparently is part of this, uh, and as the Air Force is bombing, uh, how much damage the bombing can be done by the Sudanese Air Force strikes me as being not very high, but anyway, it's there. Um, and, but mainly, the predation is being caused by people they hire, these uh, John Dewey types who are basically on horseback and camelback, and they're given free reign. Uh, they're they're, they're uh, hard to control because you can't stop their paycheck because you don't pay them. Uh, they pay themselves. Um, and, uh, uh, but anyway, they're working for the government. The other way the thugs have come in is through warlord bands. Uh, they uh, basically become big enough, for example, in uh, Liberia, uh, when Charles Taylor came in, he started with 200 people. Uh, he sort of graduated, gradually got bigger and bigger, um, and uh, uh, became a, uh, a sizable, basically, criminal gang, and... Uh, and was uh, praying all over the country. Uh, he, he was, uh, Charles Taylor was very honest, at least, because they, when he launched an offensive on the capital city, he, the name of the offensive was Operation Pay Yourself. <laughs> I mean, none of this sort of fancy stuff, you know, enduring freedom. No. No. This is, no, because his thugs are saying, when do we get, you know, we're starving out here. He says, okay, we're going to attack the city and you can loot it. Uh, not to mention rape, pillage. And I, I, I'm being sort of you know, flip about this, but the amount of devastation these bands can do can be horrific. Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people die. Uh, sometimes directly, but mostly indirectly, because famines take place, uh, because uh, uh, water becomes polluted, uh, uh, because disease is untreated, the hospitals get broken down, and so forth. Okay, so basically you have this criminal warfare, there's also been um, what I call uh, uh, a, uh, a policing wars, uh, and I can go back over this later if you want, but uh, uh, what happens is, it seems to me the way of looking at this is as follows. At the end of the Cold War, uh, people who had been opposed to war, at least since World War I, at least in general and in principle, uh, sat around saying, why are we opposed to war? Well, the answer is because people get killed in wars. So uh, if you could have wars in which no one got killed, 
uh, you'd say, well, that's okay, you know, solve the problem. Uh, you wouldn't call it a war, you'd call it mediation or diplomacy or something. Uh, but the point of it, war is not necessarily a bad thing, it does solve international problems, it's the way it does it. So therefore, the point is, the reason we're against war is because it kills people. Well, uh, by the time you get to 1990 or so, the question is, what really kills the most people artificially? The answer is two things, uh, neither of which are international war. Uh, one is civil war, uh, as I've already demonstrated, um, and the other is, uh, uh, is uh, government. Uh, Rudolf Rommel has done a book called Death by Government, and he argues that more people have died in the 20th century at the hands of their own government that have been killed in all the wars put together. International, civil, uh, whatever. Just add them all up. The, the, the Auschwitz types um, and, the, and the gulags and so forth have killed more people. Um, the genocide in Cambodia, etc. Um, so therefore, what you ought to do, basically, is try to stop, you know, uh, uh, stop these kinds of uh, happenings, namely get rid of these vicious regimes and to police civil wars. Um, and uh, so therefore, one of the things you might want to use for that is warfare or military force, or certainly the threat of military force. And variously, during the 90s, some of these, like Haiti, for example, it wasn't really a war. The United States threatened a war, and then the Haitians let them in, so no one got shot. Uh, but so it's sort of the expression of war. Uh, uh, in various ways, uh, disciplined forces have been used to try to police things, and mostly it's worked pretty well uh, in its own terms. Uh, but I don't think that policing wars are the way of the future. In fact, I think they're not. Um, there, there's several reasons. One is the argument is that ancient hatreds are too strong, uh, which is basically a myth as far as I'm concerned. People fight because of ancient hatreds. There's a lot of that on the book if you want it. Uh, which you can, by the way, you can get for 1887 uh, at, uh, at Amazon.com. Uh, it's 47, uh, 37% off. This is cheaper than I can get it almost. Uh, anyway, there's also an aversion to nation building because after you police the wars, then you have to police the area, and that's costly and a pain in the neck, even if it doesn't cost much in, the, in terms of, of uh, being uh, uh, casualties. There's also low tolerance for casualties. How many casualties is it worth to pacify Somalia? Well, we lost 19 and said that's too many. Um, and the Red Cross leaves, you know, when, when a few of their people get killed. In other words, it's not worth saving a lot of lives if I have to die in the, in the process. So for most humanitarian type ventures, the tolerance is quite low. In addition, there's no political gain from success. I mean, if George Bush the first didn't get a big gain from the Gulf War, which is an almost perfect war from the political standpoint, I mean, he went, it's big trauma, he leaves the country in, Blam, they have the war, it's over, the Americans come back, victory parades, I mean, you couldn't, you know, it's like a Hollywood movie. Um, and if he couldn't win re-election in 1992 after that, it, it's not clear that you gained very much. George, his son, I think, probably almost certainly would have done much better in this election, but hadn't been for Iraq. Uh, there's also bias against war and aggression, and in particular now what we've had, of course, is the Iraq War, uh, which may lead to what I, uh, potentially, the, the Iraq Syndrome. Um, that basically what the Iraq thing is demonstrated, particularly the nation-building problem big time, um, uh, and the casualty problem and the lack of political gain, it seems to me. That's Tony Blair about political gain uh, from the Iraq war. Um, so I think probably, what, uh, what, uh, even though it's not, a good, I mean, it, it's not a good lesson, the British went into Sierra Leone and basically pacified the situation. It's coming out pretty well. Uh, last year, the Liberian, 2003, the Liberians were begging to develop countries to come in. Charles Taylor was not running the country. He was a thug. And there's some other thugs who were trying to get him out. And they're in the middle. So they were putting corpses on the, on the embassy steps of the United States, uh, saying, please, come in, save us from these thugs. You know, colonize us, anything. And George Bush said, you know, well, 
Sorry, we're too busy killing people in Iraq. Uh, <laughs> but no one else did. You don't see the Swedes are coming in? No, right? Canadians are coming? No. Uh, the Germans, the French, you know, Thais? No. Uh, they, just, uh, they, uh, they said, well, maybe we can stick in a couple of, you know, Nigerians, uh, which they did. The Nigerians that had been there before, they were called Ecomog, and they looted the country uh, so that Ecomog became known in Liberia as every car or moving object gone. Uh, uh, but they did sort of, even the Nigerians were able to pacify the thing a little bit, they just sort of looted the thing, but nonetheless. Uh, so at any rate, it seems to me that policing wars, which have been sort of fashionable a little bit, very reluctantly nonetheless, in the 1990s, I don't think they have legs either. So I think they're likely to pretty much go away, unless there's a really major provocation. Um, uh, uh, you know, weapons of mass destruction with a real threat, etc. George Bush had a lot of trouble selling that uh, with Iraq, as you're well aware. Well aware. Um, and then there are also there are also at least some wars which I would consider disciplined wars, generally. Uh, Sri Lanka, where you really did have uh, not necessarily at the beginning, but certainly ultimately a dedicated uh, disciplined force on each side. Uh, Israel, uh, though that doesn't quite reach the casualty level to be counted a thousand, nonetheless, both sides are disciplined. I mean, obviously, when you have suicide bombers, that's a definition that they're willing to fight for their cause. Uh, the Iraq insurgency, similarly, this is a disciplined force. It's not, there's a lot of criminal predation going on, too, because it's a failed state. Um, and in Chechnya, but, but nonetheless, much of the insurgency is obviously very dedicated and disciplined. Okay. Um, now, let me go back to the, uh, what I think is probably the main reason why uh, these wars have basically declined, civil wars have particularly declined. Here's the chart again. And I think it's basically effective government. Um, that, uh, uh, the book argues basically that the main reason for civil wars in many cases is the government screws up. It does this in various ways. Uh, one is that they, at, at the beginning of Sri Lanka, at the beginning in Azerbaijan, uh, what would happen, there'd be an ethnic riot in which there's rioters running around predating on whatever the ethnic group is. In one case is Tamils, the other case is the Armenians. Um, and uh, the government, instead of stopping the rioting, either sits on its hands or is in complicity with the rioters. The result is the Tamils leave. Uh, because it's dangerous, and the Armenians leave because it's dangerous. So basically, the government has effectively caused it by bad policing. In other words, in other cases, uh, the government basically doesn't know what the hell it's doing. In both Liberia and in Sierra Leone, for example, uh, the government had a really crummy army of about 3,500 people. Um, there was then a, an insurgency off in some corner of the country. So they took this really crummy army, and they massively expanded it to a spectacularly big crummy army of maybe ten or 20,000 people. They just sort of dragged off the streets and go off and fight, go off and fight the rebels. So uh, what happened is that these guys basically get out there and they say they're worse than the rebels. In fact, in the case of Liberia, they had a special name for them. They called them Sobels because they're soldiers part-time and they're rebels the other time. You know, so the same guys would... So basically, you know, just uh, complete screw-ups. Uh, what happens is it just tends to be an incredible amount of overreaction on the part of governments, uh, uh, and uh, that has basically caused the, uh, this. Now, uh, the, the pattern here basically follows that. If you look just at the civil wars, this big bulge thing here, uh, what you have is this, this growth in the 60s, uh, which uh, two or three things happening. One is mainly decolonization, probably premature decolonization, which created a bunch of really lousy governments in a lot of places, in a lot of new countries. In addition, you have democratization coming in, particularly in the late 70s, uh, which also can, there's a period uh, 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 in which, uh, as you're going toward democratization, frequently is the case you get into maybe a democracy, but, you're very, but you basically have a very weak government. Uh, in general, civil wars don't take place where you have a strong democracy or a strong authoritarian government. Uh, 
sometimes known as the police state, because they know how to control things. You get in the middle, you're in trouble. A lot of them, five, six different studies showing that. Um, anyway, so you have democratization, you have decolonization. And at the end of the Cold War, you had two big effects. One was the end of the Cold War, namely the end of communism, and a lot of uh, unstable, ineffective, and sometimes criminal regimes uh, cropping up in many of the new states that were formed either out of the Soviet Union or out of uh, East Europe. Um, as some people call it, the former East Europe. Um, and, um, uh, the, and also what you had at the time was that once the Cold War was over, who cares about Africa? I mean, before, you know, Mobutu was a pretty good guy, right? He was a thug, he was looting his country, but he's on the right side in the Cold War. Uh, after the Cold War, what is he? He's a thug who's looting his country. People say how oh, things have gotten more complicated since the end of the Cold War. That strikes me as a lot easier. Uh, and so Mobutu and a lot of his other uh, cronies uh, uh, in, in, in Europe, I mean in Africa, basically they cut off the dole by the French, by the Americans, by other people. Uh, so what happened was that uh, you had a lot of uh, shaky governments that had been held together mainly by, um, uh, by uh, 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 outside aid. Uh, being able to prop them up, they could bribe people and so forth. Mobutu was very good at that. Uh, and then they didn't get it, and then the wars take place. Uh, okay, now what's been happening, I think, since the 1990s is that these war, a lot of these wars are ending, and they're being, they're being, uh, and, and uh, um, they're uh, being policed by relatively effective governments. There's a fair amount of literature, and it's still pretty speculative, but you're increasingly getting better governments in many places. I call it the Mobutu to Mandela effect. Uh, increasingly, uh, in Africa in particular, which is a place where m many of the civil wars have taken place, um, what has happened in, over the course of time uh, is that you're getting people who actually want to really build a country. They want to be George Washingtons, or more relevantly, Mandelas, uh, rather than simply looting the country. Um, and uh, uh, Robert Rothberg, for example, at Harvard, um, an Africanist, has been pointing out, you know, it's pretty good. Uh, he's still, you know, he's still got the old guys like Mugabe in, uh, in uh, Zimbabwe, but they're becoming quite rare. Um, and, and I think that's basically what's happening. Um, my uh, book concludes basically with uh, a, a homage to Canada and its slogan. Um, uh, mo most countries uh, have these glorious things like duty, honor, country, or ein Reich, ein Volk, ein Führer, or liberty, or death, and equality, fraternity, and uh, liberty, equality, and fraternity, and so forth. The Canadians are often mocked because their slogan is peace, order, and good government. Uh, and people say, God, how boring. You know? <laughs> it's also cumulatively, redund cumulatively redundant because order already implies police, uh, peace, uh, and good government implies both. But the Canadians basically have it right. That's what we need. Good government, and you'll get order and peace. And I think that's basically what's happening. And the, and the key is this. So the trend, if I'm right about that, and, and, and the connections, obviously, uh, this trend could be really quite good. And, and warfare may sort of cease to exist. Um, okay, the number of people who have noticed that wars have declined at all, as far as I can see, is about three. Uh, one is Gwyn Dyer, a uh, Canadian journalist working out of London, uh, who's written a book about war, quite a good book in the 80s, and I just noticed it's come out with a new edition. Um, and you can reach him at gwyndyer.com. He's also in the Columbus Dispatch, one of the few places he's actually said, hey, there's hardly any wars going on. Uh, and he enumerates places where things are bad. Nepal looks pretty bad. Uh, Nigeria could be a problem, too. You know, it's, it's, it's not that nothing could ever happen, but nonetheless looks pretty good. Uh, he's noticed it. Uh, the United Nations has noticed it. Um, and uh, in May 1940, uh, in, May, uh, in May 2004, uh, they uh, brought out ten stories the world should know more about. And one of them they called the peacekeeping paradox. 
Um, the, and this story, which was snappy title, was we got a real problem here. There's a lot of peace to keep. What's happening is these civil wars are ending. Uh, you're getting g- good governments, basically, governments that basically really want to make the bloody place work. Uh, not, these leaders sometimes still do a fair amount of looting and stuff, but, you know, it's just called high pay. Um, but nonetheless, it's not like the old days. It's not like the old turkeys, the old monsters, the old disaster, the old dictators. Um, and so things are really getting better in this respect. Um, and, uh, and, and so what these countries need right now is help. Simple, and it doesn't take money. I mean, it takes money, but it doesn't take much in the way of, uh, you know, you, you, no one has to shoot anybody, and we're not getting it. Um, so it, it strikes me as a really interesting story. So I just did a LexisNexis search. I searched for, for in May, 19, uh, May 2004 for the words peacekeeping and paradox to see how many, how many people decided this was a story that people should hear more about, and I got two hits. Um, one was the uh, uh, Business Week did a story. It was also in the Philippine version of Business Week, so that's two right there. Uh, and it was on the Lair News Hour, which is where I found out about it. Uh, it may be that they talked about it and didn't use the word paradox, but it just seems obvious that you, in a story about the peacekeeping paradox, you'd use both words. Um, so the point is that you got this really phenomenal thing happening. It's not noticed. The other people have noticed is the Peace Research Institute at Oslo, um, in a somewhat wry way, I guess, um, uh, two years ago, they got this huge grant from the Norwegian government to study civil wars. And I met Scott Gates, who is the director, co-director of it, a friend of mine at a convention. And uh, we talked for a while, and I started bringing this up. Uh, yeah, you got ten more, eight more years to study civil wars, right? Uh, well, there aren't any civil wars. And he said, yes, yeah, shh. <laughs> they notice, and they're getting antsy. So you may find guys in Oslo are out there starting civil wars. So that's something to say. <laughs> um, they're gonna, I'm sure they're going to finesse it. You know, um, the, uh, in terms of the trend, we had a lot of people here over the last year, particularly from Africa, because of uh, Norma Krieger's uh, existence here. And at these conferences, and also some I was in in Washington, I went to places where wars had recently ended, like Sri, you know, people from those places. Uh, and I really want sort of the bottom up, you know, tell me the dirt uh, kind of thing about these wars. And I said, you know, these wars are sort of over, right? And, uh, but would you expect them to sort of blossom out again? And to my surprise, I must say, what I expect them to say is, yeah, well, it's okay now, but, you know, there's a lot of problems and eventually it might explode again. Almost universally, what they said, no, it's over. It's not coming back. Um, uh, and I, as I said, I was rather surprised at that. Um, so it may be, and they may be wrong, of course, but it may be that this trend really is a pretty solid one. Okay. Um, let me uh, conclude sort of by looking at uh, theories of war. Um, this is Robert McNamara in the Fog of War. About, uh, we, uh, we can't possibly eliminate war because uh, there's all that human nature out there. If what I'm saying is true, and obviously it's speculative, I mean, I'm pretty confident that France and Germany are not getting into war anytime soon, but I certainly can't say that there's not going to be a war over Taiwan, uh, that uh, Nepal will not blow up, which there's a very good chance of that. There's obviously various unstable countries in Latin America, but particularly in Africa. Middle East obviously has lots of problems. Israel problems is certainly not going away. Um, but if I'm, but uh, so, you know, I, I can't be totally confident of it, but it does look pretty good just generally. Um, and if that's so, we could be reaching an era in which war, at least the war as I defined it, uh, but even with the other definition, there's obviously a big downturn, but at least as war as I defined it, which I think is basically a fairly classical way of looking at it, uh, could reach the point in which there aren't any anymore. Uh, we're down possibly to one or two now, maybe three, maybe, using that definition, of course. Um, okay, if that's the case, then what all these explanations about war uh, have to be really evaluated. 
if, if war goes away, uh, it, it's certainly the case that testosterone levels have not changed, uh, that we haven't evolved into a new form of peaceful gorillas or whatever. Uh, human nature, as far as I know, has not changed. The aggressive drive is still there. The, the war is still very thrilling. Um, Jeffrey Parker's going to do a series on that in September, I mean, in, uh, in the spring quarter. Um, and uh, the moral equivalent of war hasn't been fashioned. Actually, uh, uh, William James, uh, who uh, the pacifist who coined the phrase moral equivalent of war, uh, talked about war and the, uh, the uh, uh, um, the supreme theater of strenuousness, he called war. He's really exhilarated by it in some sense. And the way he wanted to get rid of war was to take all the young men and force them, force labor, to build skyscrapers and roads. Then all the aggressiveness would go out of them and they'd be happy people and they wouldn't have wars. That was his moral equivalent to war. Well, we haven't got that, uh, but war may be going away. Uh, the other is sort of resentments. Uh, nationalism is there. Religious extremism is still there. Inequality is there. Uh, brotherhood and understanding may be there somewhere, but it's not exactly overwhelming the world. Uh, sorry, Dalai Lama. Nor is uh, the uh, love, justice, harmony, goodwill, inner peace, which Dalai Lama particularly likes happening, uh, nor has hate, self selfishness, or racism suddenly gone into the toilet. They're all there. Uh, so war can go away without necessarily <laughs> resentments. You can hate people, but you don't have to kill them. If you don't kill them, it's not war. It's hate. Uh, I'm not saying hate's gone away, uh, but it's not war. Um, there's also the weaponry thing. We have to get rid of our arms, or else we can't get rid of war. We've got tons of arms. We've got some of the best countries in the world producing them like crazy, most of the developed countries, including this one. Uh, military ethos, we have to change that. Well, maybe that has changed some, but I doubt it very much uh, to a degree. Um, the arms trade is still there. Proliferation of weapons are there. The argument we can't stop war until we get rid of nuclear weapons. Well, that not... People haven't been saying that lately, but they used to. Um, obviously, the nuclear weapons are still there. Uh, various economic reasons. You have to have development, trade, interdependence, communication, get rid of economic inequality, develop. Uh, I mean, there have been progress on that in many fronts, but it obviously there's still huge problems. Um, uh, institutions, finally, um, is the uh, you know, state system is still there. Uh, the nation state is still there. It's more or less what it always has been. Uh, international organization hasn't happened. Um, we haven't got a world government. Um, um, the, uh, you know, it's not going to basically happen anytime soon. Alex Wen tells us it's going to happen in the next two or three millennia or something, and we're always looking forward to that. Um, <laughs> actually, more like 100 years or so. Uh, but it's not falsifiable in the ordinary sense. Um, at any rate, international organization, the argument with world government or world federalism, you can't stop war, mainly, of course, obviously international war, because... Uh, government, international governments can't, wouldn't be able to do much of civil war, but at least international war, by having the world government, um, you, you know, you don't have one. I mean, the United Nations is there, but no one calls it a world government. In fact, obviously, in fact, if I'm right, it may be bad to have a world government, because the reason you want to have world government is to stop war. If war goes away, then maybe a world government would only get in the way. It would do, it'd be just start doing a lot of regulation and stuff that you don't want. Um, we've outlawed war and renounced war. That has not exactly been the reason the war has gone away. Uh, security communities have grown up, but not exactly overwhelming. Democracy is not, you know, uh, the cause of much of this either. Um, okay, uh, I've basically gotten three responses to this argument here. One is it ain't happening, um, and I tried to argue, you know, why I think it is happening. I mean, you know, I can't be sure it's going to continue forever. Uh, secondly, okay, it's happening, but I still have faith in my fellow man, <laughs> which is what uh, Roger Hayden, my editor at Cornell, said. Um, okay, interesting book, but no, they'll figure it out. My God. And maybe that's right. I don't know. I, since people haven't changed any, you know, internally, etc., um, you know, they can probably still, and they still know how to do war. 
uh, it may it may come back. Uh, I've given the reasons why I think that there's a good chance that that is not the case. And then then I get the really this bizarre thing. They say, well, yeah, but what about inequality in South Africa? Um, what I'm telling you is that war, you know, that's really two of the horsemen of the apocalypse. One is conquest, one is war. Another is famine, and famine is very much caused by war, uh, almost overwhelmingly, um, or by stupid governments. Um, uh, uh, so three of the horsemen of the apocalypse, the only one left is death, uh, and death will not go away. Uh, it's in there. So the, that we're down to one horseman of the apocalypse, maybe. Um, and I said, that's all I'm saying. You know, war has gone away. And they say, yeah, but there's all these other problems. And I totally agree. You can get rid of war and you still have problems. In fact, when you get rid of one war, you tend to find other ones to worry about. Uh, certainly one of the biggest ones has been terrorism. Um, uh, the, uh, the American war in Iraq has now killed more Iraqis than have been killed by all the terrorists, national or international, over the last century. Uh, terrorism doesn't seem to fit into the war category in many respects, uh, certainly in its intensity level, even cumulatively, and even including 9-11. Uh, but if you want to worry about terrorism, terrorism you certainly can, and a lot of people are. In fact, that's what my next book is going to be about. Um, and there's also other, all kinds of other problems that you might want to deal with as well. They're all over the place. Um, and you can pick the one you want to deal with. <laughs> Anyway, what I would like to leave you with and is, is, is this very de depressing things that when, you know, when really bad things happen, uh, really bad things go away, it doesn't make people any happier because they find lots of other things to worry about, and there will always be people things to worry about. We're also getting spending the life, the life expectancy, which means you have more years in which to complain about how bad things are. Thank you. John, thank you. Unfortunately, you've compelled me now to tell Randy that he was right. <laughs> uh, Jeffrey Parker. Could we have the first one? Yes. That one? That's it. Oh, so that's how you knew what was on there. You can see the little pictures. Well, here we are. Low intensity warfare, huh? <laughs> Not yet. You'll know. Believe me. You'll know. Yes, the idea really came uh, for this event when I was listening to WOSU as I was driving to Mershon one day. And I heard uh, Fred Anderley doing an interview with my friend and colleague John Mueller. And I thought to myself, wow, as our students would say, awesome. And then I thought, you know, why, why am I listening to WOSU to find out what he does? Uh, we need to celebrate this. This is a major study. And the idea came to me that perhaps we could uh, have uh, an evening. Uh, when I got to Mershon, I found that John had graciously given me a copy of the book, which I then read. Uh, and this unusual author portrait on the jacket uh, made me want to read it even more. Um, John has summarized his book. Well, you think he summarized it. Believe me, a lot of what he was saying isn't in the book at all. Uh, but I'd like to focus on three aspects that he does write about because he has seen my remarks. I haven't seen his. Um, so he, he managed to diffuse some of the things I said, but that ain't going to determine. As I say, I have the low-intensity weapons here. Uh, first of all, the book reminds us and reminds especially us historians of a very important distortion 
And that is that when we equate war with major conflicts, when we concentrate on the big battalions, we are seriously misrepresenting and distorting the historical record. As Alan Millett once memorably pointed out to me, the business of the military in wartime is killing people and breaking things. And historically, small wars have killed far more people and broken far more things than big ones. Often, and this is a curious fact, the small <coughs> wars prove to be more memorable. Take, for example, the 17th century, which, in which I spend most of my working life. On the one hand, it's been noticed that most veterans of the English Civil War, who were interviewed later about their military experience, remembered encounters, raids, and skirmishes that have all but perished from the historical record. They seldom mentioned the big battles that historians see as the turning points. And on the other hand, and I think an explanation of that, if you tally up the fatalities, the casualties, far more soldiers lost their lives in the 800 or so small encounters than died in the big battles, such as Naseby and Marston Moor. Almost half of all the English men killed in action between 1642 and 1650 died in incidents that involved 250 people max. And three quarters of all those who died in the English Civil War perished in incidents that involved a thousand people max. The teleological approach that Western historians like me have adopted commits a second distortion, and that is that we tend to privilege the victors. We explain why we won, not why they lost, especially when they are irregular forces. Indeed, that's a significant word, and I learned that from Mueller's book. The terminology we use about our opponents is highly significant. Calling them insurgents, terrorists, irregulars, these are judgmental terms which belittle and marginalize those so described. Returning once more to the 17th century, my colleague in the history department, Stephen Dale, has drawn attention to an important group of desperate and resourceful enemies of European expansion in southwest India. Criminal gangs known in all the Western sources as the Malabar Pirates. Some pirates. They successfully held the West at bay for three centuries. In 1735, they even captured an East Indiaman, one of the largest armed ships afloat anywhere in the world. A Black Hawk Down moment that enraged and appalled Western opinion, but proved a powerful recruiting tool for the pirates. But if we look at the Islamic sources, these same Malabar pirates there are described as the Mujahideen, an Arabic word which means those who struggle. In the Arabic language chronicles, these men struggle heroically to defeat cruel and rapacious invaders who loot and destroy property who kill and maim merchants and merchant seamen who have done nothing to harm them. In the South Indian sources, 
The Europeans, not the Malabar freedom fighters, are the criminal gangs who must be stopped. Returning to the second, uh, returning to the, well, returning to my second point and returning to the 20th century, uh, I'm afraid I can't discuss with John the ethnic wars of Yugoslavia studied by John Mueller because I can't read the Albanian literature and my Serbo-Croat is a little rusty. But I am familiar with all of the languages spoken in Northern Ireland <laughs> where I was married and where a 30-year civil war has cast its shadow over much of my adult life. For example, in Belfast, this is an example of Parliamo Ulster, in Belfast, when an author, an author signs a book, he defaces it. I know this because in the 1980s, I bought a beautiful illustrated book in the Queen's University bookshop in Belfast that had been reduced from £20 to 2 After paying, I asked the store assistant, why the reduction? Oh, she said, it's been defaced. And sure enough, I found that both authors had signed the title page. Now... Fortified by this advanced linguistic competence, I have studied Ulster 101, and I have an A. Let me turn to John Mueller's claim that, quote, Europe since 1945 has now spent longer at peace than at any time since Rome. That assessment will be met with disbelief by anyone like me who has lived in Britain, where more than 30 years of sectarian violence, the Troubles, have cost thousands of lives and have maimed or impoverished tens of thousands. And of course, it would have killed many, many more had the Royal Victoria Hospital not become so expert in repairing the maimed victims of terrorism. If you have a kneecap injury, go to Belfast. They're better at fixing kneecaps than anywhere else in the world. We have to remember that one reason so few people die in wars these days is the paramedics who are so able at curing and recycling the victims. To deny that the Northern Ireland struggle is a war because less than a thousand people died in it each year to me makes no sense. You could point out correctly that more people died in road accidents in the UK in the past 30 years and in the Troubles. You could say the same about Spain where the sustained campaign by ETA Euskarita Aksasasuna Basque homeland and freedom against the Madrid government has also cost hundreds of lives and maimed or impoverished thousands. And you could point out that there too the number of road deaths far exceeds those killed in the Troubles. And you might say, as I'm sure John would say, so what? Well, so what? You could also point out that more people died in the influenza epidemic of 1919 than died in the whole of World War I. But that doesn't make World War I not a war. For me, it's not the battle-related deaths that make a war, nor is it the number of perpetrators. On September the 11th, 2001, just 19 men killed over 3,000 of those they perceived as their enemies. But it wasn't a battle, so it doesn't count. For once, I agree with President Bush who remarked once he'd finished the children's story and realized what was going on that morning, I guess we're at war. A war is when you're under attack. And that leads to my third and last point. As John correctly asserts, certain, and I'm quoting, 
I hope accurately. Certain standard, indeed classic varieties of war, particularly major war or wars among developed countries, have become so rare and unlikely that they could well be considered obsolescent, if not obsolete. True, but as the remnants of war also makes explicit, just a single charismatic individual can change that. <coughs> the risk still exists that under the wrong leader, one who believes God is on his side and no one can stop him, that one or more Western or Westernized states will repeat the mistakes made so often in the past, twice in the 20th century, and engage in mutual hostilities that inflict their awesome capacity for destruction upon each other. In the 1930s, only one world leader really wanted a major war, Adolf Hitler. In the first years of the 21st century, only one world leader really wanted a major war, George W. Bush. And both of them got it, despite the fact that the rest of the world desperately opposed and feared that war, war is what they got. It only takes one. But to conclude on a positive note, I welcome John Mueller's call for military historians, and especially military historians, to include far more in their accounts on the vanquished, on why the enemies of the West usually lose, on how they recruit, on how they fight, <coughs> and on what we can do about it. Because if we don't study and learn about them, sooner or later they will cease to be the vanquished. Instead, they will dominate the remains of war. And I hope very much, John, that you're there to write about it. Thank you very much for such a provocative and enriching book and for giving us an opportunity to celebrate your genius, your geniality, and your presence here at Mershon. Thank you. I'm going to turn the floor back to John, and I'm sure he's capable of calling on anyone he'd like to. John? Jeffrey, thank you very much. Are there any notes of disagreement? Yes. Very <laughs> <laughs> I don't necessarily disagree. I just think it's fascinating that you gave us a definition of war based on battle deaths. Jeffrey's given us a, death, a definition of war, which is when you are attacked. And international law has yet another definition of war, which is the significant exchange of armed conflict by organized armed groups which has nothing to do with how many deaths you have and would certainly not count September 11th because that was an attack without a response until Afghanistan. Then there was a war. And I'm really just curious, John, doesn't the international law definition serve your purposes much better? I've heard you on so many occasions say that <coughs> September 11th was not a war, that yeah. it was in fact an act of terrorism, uh, and international law would support you in that, but uh, Jeffrey doesn't and neither does your board. Yeah, the, um, uh, what's the definition, the, the international law definition again? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I know it's sophisticated in detail, so it's, you know, it's, it's for the higher orders, but then no. um, <laughs> the significant exchange, the so significant exchange. Uh, element, but in terms of the armed fighting, not in terms of the death. Right. Significant exchange, you must have exchange to have a war. 
And that's what I find particularly uh, uh, missing in Jeffrey's definition, not just an attack if you're a victim. Right. If somebody punches you and you don't hit back, you don't have a fight, you have a victim. Yeah. Um, so the significant exchange of armed fighting by organized armed groups, and that's why terrorism in Northern Ireland would be questionable um, whether or not they uh, uh, have that, that sustained. There's certainly nothing in the order of hostilities and so forth. In, in those terrorists. Yeah, I guess the, the issue is about significant. It actually fits. It's just that they define significant as you have to, have to kill ten, a thousand people on each side have to die. Uh, it does require that both sides have armed forces of some sort, uh, which leads to bizarre situations. <coughs> because in the data set, the civil war, which was what, what it certainly looked like, that took place after Saddam Hussein, uh, after the Gulf War in 1991, is not counted as a war because the combat, the insurgents were not organized enough to even be able to consider an armed force. They're willing to use extremely loose definition of what an armed force is. But it's basically, it basically if you've got a couple of people shooting at each other in a bar from France and Germany, you don't call that a war. So you have to get someplace where you get, you know, something meaningful and significant and a thousand deaths is it. As I suggested, you know, if you look at the history of warfare, it'd be, it's almost a ludicrously low number. And the fact that people are now thinking it's a high number may be, you know, pretty impressive all by itself. Um, when Singer and Small did it, I think they picking, you know, what they thought was a ridiculously low number. Um, so I think I think it holds in there. In terms of 9/11, no one has figured out how to count that. Actually, in the data set, what they do is they count that as a civil war that took place in the United States. So, uh, so it is in the, it's actually in the data set because more obviously more than a thousand people were killed. On the other hand, they weren't. I guess they're caught in the crossfire. Um, they're trying to destroy the World Trade Center and those people. I don't know how they look at it. But anyway, they, they have to do something with it. If things like that happen, if terrorism gets bad enough so that you do frequently get those kinds of casualties, which I think is probably pretty unlikely, but um, most people don't agree with that, um, the, uh, then the you know, definitions are going to be really tricky in this respect. It was also an organized force, Al-Qaeda, obviously. So. Anyway, it's the issue about what is significant. If 25 strikes me as not significant. On the armed exchange, yeah. a lot of the results in death, and so, and there's no exchange on September 11th. Right. You didn't shoot yeah. back. So you don't have you don't have exchange. It's a but you, attack. yeah, it's it just that a significant exchange. How do you know it's significant? Well, a whole bunch of people got killed. That's how we know it's significant. It, if basically two countries are firing at each other, no one gets killed, even though there's a whole bunch of artillery shells going back and forth. Um, whether you call that a war or not, maybe you would, but you would for international law, right? Yeah, yeah, I don't so think I would. Italians that meet each other and shoot, and they're bad shots, and nobody dies. Right. It's still, it would still be an exchange. Yeah, right. You said the temporal parameter for what's exchange. I mean, you said Afghanistan was a response. Right, if you, if you, you count that. Yeah, the way they count Afghanistan, the data said, is it's a civil war with a whole lot of intervention from an outside power. <laughs> uh, but actually, it was the case. There were, in the first part of the Afghan war, there were only a few hundred Americans who directly participated on the ground. Uh, and then there was a lot of bombing, of course. And then later on, with the... Uh, with, with the um, Tora Bora type thing. There were more Americans on the ground, but actually the number of Americans in that war was incredibly low. Yeah, Marcus. Uh, yeah, if you want to call terrorism war, then it's going to be there forever. Uh, it's like crime. That any, if anything could be done by one person or in a tiny group, if you call that a war, then that's what I try to avoid doing. <coughs> I'd rather call terrorism. I think that's a legitimate uh, kind of thing. I don't know about technology, <coughs> because technology, it's like civil wars are 
going becoming obsolete. They're not happening either. It's not, and I think if there's technology, it's just that governments are getting better at policing them, uh, which is much more an organizational thing than any kind of uh, uh, machine. You mentioned several, so few people know this is declining more. But didn't Kenneth Waltz really basically argue that there's been a global peace among the major powers oh, yeah. because of the threat of the nuclear war? So he's a guy who noticed that. I mean, at least yeah. from the definition of global war between the major powers. So yeah. could you imagine <coughs> there, there may be conflicts that could arise where if we had uh, multilateral nuclear disarmament, there would be a revival of this, this definition of conventional war among the there's no technical reason why I can't come back. But well, I'm not talking about that people have noticed a decline of international war. They have John Keegan, you know, his book talks about that. It's a very good chance it'll never happen again. So it's Michael Howard, military historians. <clears throat> but what they, no one's noticed is it's a remarkable decline in particularly civil wars over the last few years. Huge number of long-running civil wars have ended and seem to have ended permanently, and new ones aren't starting. Uh, the, uh, the big rise... Uh, if I can... Or am I this? Now, the big rise was main, not so much. It won't move. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, the big rise was not so much because there were, there were wars stopping and new wars starting, but rather the wars continued on. They got longer and longer civil wars. Basically, in my view, they became criminal enterprises. Um, well, that, okay, it's finally catching up. Um, at any rate, um, the uh, and so the uh, uh, so that's what's that's what uh, that's what's going down. By the way, you mentioned Walls. I mean, Walls wrote this book called Man, State, and War. And if I'm right, basically none of this thing make any sense uh, 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 <coughs> because men haven't improved, human nature hasn't changed, the state hasn't changed, and the state system hasn't changed. Nonetheless, war, um, it, it potentially at least, uh, could be uh, going. Let me, well, if, 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 if the, you could say the state has changed if you think um, if you think that uh, there's been change attitude, which is what I would stress on. It's change attitude towards war. If that's change of state, but it's certainly the, the kind of states that exist. The nation state system hasn't changed. Can I follow up with one of the responses <coughs> I still have to make to my fellow man? Um, if, if the decline the government is because you know there's some reaction to the local food is new generation and after maybe we're just lucky right now. Uh, I mean, do you, wouldn't I'd be more confident if I knew why uh, we were getting better governments now, uh, and that the reason why we're getting better governments was some long uh, reason that have long-term effects. Don't have a good answer for that. Uh, yes, it's because, you know, this problem dealing with attitudes change, they can change back. Uh, we could have, you know, slavery could come back, we know how to do it, um, and uh, uh, the bustle could come back, war could come back, Hitler could come back, um, or Hitler. <coughs> um, it may be that this is just, that's, I mean, that's the, exactly what uh, Hayden was saying about, I still pay them, that basically this is a downward blip. That's what I thought was happening, you know, this, because this, when I wrote the book, this is where, where the numbers were, you know, I started working about 2000 or so. And they were sort of hanging in there. As I mentioned, it's, it seemed to be what had happened is he got rid of sort of the excess of the post-communist period and we're leveling off. <coughs> and it was only very late when I was doing the book when I said, I got it, you know, the book's coming out in 2004. 
And what I need to do is get the date at least up to 2003. But all these data sets are sort of years behind and stuff, and you have to prod them saying, what's the numbers? And they say, well, you know, ask us in about 2010. Uh, we'll, have, we'll have it. So I had to basically force the, uh, to get it up to 2003. And when I did it, I was amazed at how, that uh, some of this they talked about, but uh, this, this, this drop here. So it may be just dumb luck. It's just sort of, you know, certain forces in, in power. Um, there is a fair number of people who have been suggesting, I mentioned Robert Rotberg, um, who's suggesting, you know, we're, uh, there aren't very many dictators around anymore. And Latin America used to be filled with military dictatorships, Africa, um, Asia, East Asia. And there's no indication that, you know, Korea is not going back to dictatorship. Uh, not that it necessarily caused war or anything. Um, and, uh, you know, Thailand just had this huge economic crisis, and Thailand used to be fantastically good at military coups. And the military said, you know, we don't want to run this damn country. Um, so it may be that this is a real change uh, toward civilian government and toward governments that may be on a, uh, a, a way to work, uh, wanted to work. There's a fair amount of literature in Africa saying, uh, talking about the new African leader, Museveni in Uganda being sort of the, he's not much of a Democrat, but he's a good leader. And so that sort of idea. Mandela, you know, that was a really refreshing thing. And the question, if, it seems to me if that is really a trend, um, and we're not going back to the Mobutus and to the uh, Mugabes um, and the Seko Tures and the Nkrumahs and all those disasters, um, then you know, this could be a permanent threat. Randy? Your argument is that a good government could cut both ways. I mean, the good news for a good government is that you might get less civil wars. But the bad news is that you need strong, I, I suppose if you mean by good government, strong centralized government is what you need to wage interstate war. So what you might be seeing is that the Cold War put a damp on all of uh, interstate wars because they were sort of policing the world, seeing the zero-sum terms, I mean, so that they could have been damped in that war. Now you saw civil wars break out because you have bad government, you know, weak government. Now those weak governments will get stronger, and maybe they'll realize that war made the state, the state made war, yeah. right? And so, so this might be just a minor, right. you know, prelude to something... Yeah, I talk about that in one sentence in my book. I probably should do more on it because it's a, <laughs> no, no, well, it's a, no, it's a very good point. That's a, I mean, I think I answered it in the book, but you know, I should have done more with it. Um, yeah, what you're getting is better governance. An, an argument that there's been incredibly few international wars in Africa, or, or even more so in Latin America, but particularly in Africa. And you think you got all these border conflicts and ethnic groups on both sides of borders and everything. You thought you'd have a lot of international wars. But there haven't been, there have been incredibly few. Um, <clears throat> there's this one here, this is the, you know, right here. Ethiopia and Eritrea, you know, fought a war, a three-year war. It's the only really sort of classic war since for 15 years. You know, where you get, you know, one country against another country. I want that, I want that. You know, Franco-Prussian type war. Uh, and, but that was very rare. You know, Ethiopia against, uh, you know, the Agadem, where there's a few cases. Um, or uh, or uh, Tanzania attacking to get rid of um, Idi Amin. Uh, in, in Uganda and so forth. So there's a few, but not very, very many. And one argument is that these governments are so weak that they can't attack each other. Uh, and, they, and they're so festering with civil war, they don't have time to deal with other, other wars. And so what would happen is if you get effective governments, they're going to be willing to, uh, like what happened in Europe, is that they basically solve the civil war problem and they, they go after each other uh, in a much bigger way, in a much more costly way. So that's completely possible, it seems to me. Uh, the, I, what I would use to counter that is sort of my grander argument about the change of attitude toward war, that we just don't do international wars anymore. Um, as uh, Mary Ellen has pointed out, there's only been one case 
since World War II, in which one country has attacked another country and tried to incorporate, one United Nations country has attacked another United Nations country and uh, tried to gather it into its embrace, in other words, conquer it. Now it's when Saddam Hussein took over uh, Kuwait in 1990. It's the only case that that's happened. There's been border adjustments, and there's, you know, there's Israel, and there's North Korea, taking, Vietnam taking South Vietnam, and so forth. But uh, once you get into the United Nations, you, your borders tend to be pretty sacrosanct. And I think uh, the reaction to this, uh, which Michael Howard, a military historian, said, boy, this is an anachronism. Just a country attacking another country and taking it over? I mean, all of history, we define history by Roman empires and British empires and, and Persian empires and all that. The conquest, I came, I saw, I conquered. You know, the whole world is filled with that for millions of years. And now we're saying, you know, we don't do that anymore. And I think probably that's the case. If you have a strong government, you simply will not be allowed, um, you know, the international community is probably strong enough and worried enough about that, that they will not allow that to happen. One thing is, when you talk about good governance, mainly controlling civil wars, that good, good, what good governance don't do is overreact and send, send a bunch of thugs to basically make things 20,000 times worse. And they have police, police that are discriminatory. Good governance, by the way, are not... You can have a good pol police state that does that. Uh, a police state in which you basically... Police, basically, a police state and a free state are the same they, they, uh, if they're effective, except that the degree to which you're allowed to do stuff is different. So that in the United States, you can say nasty things about George Bush and Saddam Hussein's Iraq. You couldn't. But if you, you knew the rule, don't say bad things about Saddam Hussein, you were okay. In other words, they were discriminatory, by and large. Um, but um, in, uh, the, uh, uh, I think probably that's why I use the Iraq case, it is very tempting to think that you can go in and basically solve these problems, and that's what Iraq was in many respects. And I think that the fiasco that Iraq is turning into is likely to deflate the idea of doing that again by the United States or anybody else. Um, in some respects, that's unfortunate because it can be successful. And, and maybe like Liberia, like Sudan, I mean, Sudan right now, with a disciplined force, probably of a few thousand people, that knows what it's doing may have to be a little bigger because the area is so big. If it had gone in, it could have stopped, saved tens of thousands of lives. People are mewling and puking about Rwanda 10 years ago. Why didn't we go in? We're doing it right now. No one is going in to, to save Sudan. And what could happen in Sudan with incredibly low costs, uh, there'll be some lives being lost. It wouldn't be free. Uh, you could stop that genocide or that ethnic cleansing or whatever. It, it's too late to stop it now because it's gone so far, but it could have been. And no one wanted to do it. So I don't think they're likely to do it. I think the only time they're likely to intervene is when they think their interests are at stake. And that's going to tend to be if you've got somebody who is really, you know, base for terrorism that you're really concerned about, if they're sending you a lot of refugees that you don't like, which is sort of the Haiti problem, uh, if they've got uh, so-called weapons of mass destruction that they might use on you, uh, if they're rogue states and you get worried enough about it, you might have that. But... Um, you know, uh, I mean, North Korea is a concern because they might do something bad like give nuclear weapons to terrorists. 
the fact that the North Koreans have caused, because of mostly criminal incompetence, uh, two or three million of their own people to die through famine doesn't, you know, people say, so what? So I don't think it's going to be a general uh, process overall. I, I think that's a pretty good chance. That's what I call the Iraq syndrome, that, that we're sort of over that level. John, I know some of the literature on uh, the long peace in Europe since 1945 suggests economic integration, which was started by the United States under U.S. leadership through the Marshall Plan, the Poland Steel Community, and so forth, was a vital component of that formula. I wonder if you think on the global scale, the globalization of capitalism or other economic systems and the globalization of popular culture, uh, everything from Nike to the NBA to Disney, um, and in a technological way, the Internet, whether those kinds of factors might contribute to the emergence of this new global stability. That you're uh, no, I don't think so. Um, it's just the global stability. I mean, the coal and steel community were created because people didn't want to have war. Uh, and so they could subscribe to the theory that we, if we have international economic connections, we'll, we won't kill each other. Uh, that's their theory, and, uh, but I think the theory is wrong. The reason, the reason they wanted the international the community, it, it wasn't that they had the coal and steel community, so therefore they said, we're not going to have war. But they said, we don't want to have war, so let's have the coal and steel community because it'll make them help in that respect. Uh, so I, I, I generally think that all the idea about international um, connections and international trade and so forth are, are not the cause of peace, but the peace is their cause. Peace is the, if you basically don't want to go to war, then you start doing things about, you know, what, what can we do to make it less likely? And I think they're more, much more likely to be the effects than the cause overall. Um, and as far as the decline of war here is concerned, I don't think it has much to do with connections or communications or anything else. Um, uh, of that sort overall. It, it's happening, I think, because of you know the factors I've, I've illustrated. I don't, I don't see why knowing, wearing Nikes, I mean, these guys, you know, these thugs who were running around were wearing Nikes. <laughs> and, <laughs> they loved it. And they are calling themselves General Rambo. Rambo was one of the big, you know, I've got a chart in my book. In fact, maybe I can find it here about how many people, you know, Rambo movies. They, 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 before going to battle, they'd watch Rambo movies. You know, if anything, it made them, you know, get out there even more. One, one Bosnian, uh, one Sarajevo film director, theater director, suggested that Sylvester Stallone should be tried as a war criminal um, because his movies are so inspiring. And the guy, they wore Rambo things, you know, things off the border, and they have bad patches and things like that, and, you know, just, you know, trying to look like him. Um, and that was, I mean, this guy might in the front of the book there, basically, is, you know, he probably is a Rambo. It's not what John, it, uh, to me, I mean, the thousand death criterion implies essentially hostilities between relatively equal states, uh, either over a sustained period of time if the population is relatively small, maybe over a short period of time if they're larger, uh, except maybe if war broke out between Andorra and the back and micro states. <laughs> uh, because I can think of a number of, I guess, what we would call incursions, certainly. Uh, of state upon state, at least formally, uh, just in the last 25 years. So just to take a few examples, a couple of them involving the U.S. Uh, invasion of Grenada in 1983, the invasion of the first uh, President Bush uh, in, in the Esenariega regime in Panama in 1989, uh, the Israeli invasion of Lebanon in 1982. Just to take a few examples, these are very unequal kinds of relationships, basically, a much more powerful state invades much less. Um, <clears throat> so it doesn't typically meet because the action's over relatively fast, or at least it's not this uh, highly intense. 
It doesn't make a thousand death criteria, but still, still has the smell and the sound of yeah. Uh, well, but if you take the, 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 the keeper in uh, Grenada, uh, it would not count as a war by that definition. Uh, but some people do. They say, well, it's an invasion. You could also say Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait uh, was a, um, uh, not a war. And generally, people don't die, at least in some number. It's, not, it's just an, it's an un, unopposed invasion. I guess from Mary Ellen's standpoint, if it's not opposed, then it's okay. It was opposed. They were against it. Yes. Yes. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So there was some. Yeah. Later on, mostly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So there was. There was. Yeah. Anyway, they obviously didn't like it. Um, there was also fighting grenade a little bit. So. Yeah. Alex. Um, this actually picks up directly on that question. This whole thousand battle deaths criterion for war has always puzzled me to behavioral definition because you get into weird situations where you have a low intensity conflict for 10 years it only becomes a war in the 10th year right. okay? and yet all along the participants think they've been fighting a war yeah. it's not a war by our criteria to me that suggests that what defines a war as a war is how the participants understand it okay? you have to have two parties on each side each of whom recognizes the other as the enemy and we're fighting for some political purposes and so on. If you think of war in those in, in those more phenomenological terms instead of behavioral terms, that suggests a couple things. One, that war might be becoming redefined these days, so that terrorism is now a war in this sort of new understanding. And it also calls attention to the way in which war is actually a form of cooperation between the two sides because each needs the other. It takes two to tango. It takes two to tango, yeah. exactly. So it's actually a kind of collective action, mm -hmm. which is highly destructive. So I'm wondering what you think about that kind of spin on on wall. Would that change your... Well, the latter part is basically built in because they do require two to tango. They have to have a, uh, opposition. They have to have two... Uh, you need a government and then some sort of... Co either another government for international wars or some sort of group that you can sort of tell what it is and has a sort of a uh, degree of leadership. The insurgency in Iraq probably would ha have no trouble qualifying, even though the leadership is obviously something less than easy to, to cut down. Uh, in terms of the first part about what people think, I mean, it goes to what Jeffrey was saying as well. Uh, what they called, they, they didn't, I don't know if they called it war in Northern Ireland. They called it, they did call it the Troubles, uh, which is, of course, a very mellow way of putting it. Uh, and, but it was very, it was quite destructive over a long period of time. But uh, most people don't use that word war with that. You can redefine it. I mean, I mean, I'm sort of battling to argue that you ought to, you know, some point you call things wars, and things that aren't war should be called something else. And and this thousand battle death thing strikes me as being a fairly sensible way of doing it. I mean, you can obviously it's an arbitrary number, but nonetheless. Uh, but if you use what the people in the war actually in, in the area of combat think it is many of these things probably wouldn't be considered wars. They're basically criminal activity, they would say it as, or it's very sporadic, uh, which, would, and, I mean, I was in Northern Ireland in the, during, during the Troubles, and, you know, everybody sort of talked but about Panama discussing. Panama might be a war, though, Panama now? No, when the U.S. invaded and took over. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right, yes, yes, combat, right. right. Right, you get extremely low, uh, right, you get wars that are extremely brief, and, and uh, uh, because the invasion of Iraq would not, I guess, that probably didn't, no matter what you say, <laughs> whatever your numbers are, they're not over a thousand, so it wouldn't count. Uh, by my definition, as a war. <coughs> yeah, if you get really small wars in which hardly anybody gets killed, that's why the Falklands is, you know, case it actually didn't make it a thousand, and people want to call it a war. Uh, you can get these uh, things like uh, the Grenada thing, like, uh, like like Panama, like Haiti would have been 
if the Haitians actually fought. Um, and um, they're going to be, they'll be called something else. I tend to call them armed conflicts or something. This is what they, the Norwegians no, do. No. No, I've given, you, I've given you the data for 25 deaths. So that would include all of those. And it's still the same uh, pattern, it's just more of them. Yeah, Maria? <coughs> idea about um, you know defining so forth the um, uh, British in Northern Ireland resisted very seriously calling that conflict a war for all kinds of psychological reasons that Alex alluded to. They um, said it never rose to the significant level so that they did not have to apply the Geneva Conventions, for example, which has provisions even for civil war once the significance uh, threshold is triggered. And that's why you know, it is actually very important how you define these things because you know, it depends on who you do accuse of being a war criminal and so forth. It has to be a war to be a war criminal. Um, and the British, for psychological reasons, said that this is a um, this is uh, a cri- this is criminal activity. Thatcher is very big on that. Exactly, because they did not want to give the psychological boost to the IRA of saying that they were their equal. As soon as you call someone a combatant, they become their equal. Right. And that's why I've always found it extremely curious that President Bush would call the uh, name a war on terror. Why would he say that his opponent had risen to the level of combatancy, which is what our soldiers are, they're combatants. And I, you know, so, uh, uh, you know, it's a little bit curious in terms of this strange number uh, of, of deaths. I mean, people die in all kinds of situations, but to say a thousand deaths when there's not the significant level of actual interaction that you can't deny is a war. And, you know, in Northern Ireland, there was some deniability because there wasn't the same sort of organization and actual outbreak of hostility. But something like Panama or Grenada, even if brief, did uh, amount to those kind of battle formations and that kind of intensity. You did see hostility. The Geneva right. Conventions did apply. Uh, Noriega is a prisoner of war because it was a war. So I, I'm, I'm surprised that you resist these kind of alternative. Uh, you know, I think better definitions of war is different. Yeah. Well, well, certainly, of course, I'm dealing with civil wars, which is the main kind of wars, and you can get you know the little conflagrations, riots, and things like that. And they're all over the place. You get a billion of them. I have given you the data for 25 or more uh, dead. Uh, in the case of Northern Ireland, what they tried to do also, uh, as part of the thing, is they didn't get it to being a war. What they did is they did they basically uh, used police tactics. Uh, and the reason for that, what they didn't do is, for example, and they're probably mad enough at times to do so, the British, was to find some Catholic village and just level it, you know, out of rage because some of their guys have been killed, which is what happens in a lot of these civil wars. Then what you would have had is a real war because you'd have the Catholic, the, the, the thing you don't want to do is to have the people who sort of vaguely support the opposition uh, to really come out in big numbers, and then you really do have a mess on your hands, and that's what frequently happens with ineffective war, uh, ineffective policing. The British screwed up early on with exactly that with the Bloody Sunday, where they let the paratroopers sort of got out of hand and, and uh, uh, killed a couple dozen or something uh, uh, Catholic protesters, and that was the start of the troubles. Uh, so they, they, they weren't perfect in this, but basically the way to deal with these kinds of wars is keep them small, is to deal them with basically as policing facts. So it made sense for them to deal with them, to, to talk about the basic criminal activity. It's smart, it's smart uh, um, fighting of the war, if you want to call that. Um. I'm wondering if you you taught us to be telling us um, what this backwards and how far backwards you can run it. I mean, I'm just thinking of 
I saw your last graph of civil wars coming down. One of the things that strikes me is that well, there are a lot more states created or nation yeah. states created. And it's to be expected you have this proliferation of nation states that we didn't have before, that made a civil war strength in time. If you look back, say, I'm going way far back before your data sets uh, started, you know, the Athenian Empire, uh, post-Alexander. I mean, I imagine I would see the same kind of graph. Lots of civil wars, and then a decline in civil wars. Ditto Rome, I'll, I'll defer to modernist, what we would call modern historians from the ancient perspective. Yeah. We just think that it's, it's you have proliferation of nation states, yeah, well, it's it just that what used to be that happening is that war happened all the time, certainly in Jeffrey's era. He's written about that as a century in which there's always a war someplace going on, sometimes several within Europe except for one or two years, and then they're preparing for one. And war has been endemic. War has been everywhere. Uh, you know, in primitive war and so forth, it's just sort of a standard of life. And what's happening, it seems to me, is that that's going out. Slavery also used to be endemic everywhere and it stopped happening, and I think something like that can happen before. This, by the way, the chart actually does go back. I've been, this is what I showed you. The chart actually does go back to the Napoleonic Wars. As you can see, there are an awful lot of civil wars as well, but, um, and there are also you know, increasing number of states. You're absolutely right in this period, but there are also increasing numbers somewhat in here. Now, we can see this bulge of civil wars is really spectacular, even if you go all the way back to 16, 1860. Um, and also, there's been a some decline, no matter how you define it, even in relatively small international wars for the most part, with, of course, not even, you know, leaving a hiatus there for the two big wars. Um, but um, I, I think there's, my argument is that things have really changed, like they changed with slavery. Slavery, uh, people decided, I, don't tell me we've had slavery for all time. Don't tell me that God told the Israelites to take slavery. We don't want to do it anymore. A hundred years later, it was ended and doesn't seem to be coming back, at least formal slavery. Um, and with dueling as well. So things do go away. Things that have been there forever, and churning, have cycles and so forth, and which people have taken to be part of normal human nature. Slavery was, that's what you do. Some people are slaves, some people are free people. And you win wars and you make the people into slaves. If they were gone the other way, the other people would be slaves. That's what we do. And it, and it just hasn't happened for 120 years. Uh, so, so big institutions like that can totally vanish from the face of the globe. And it seems potentially possible that war will follow a similar trajectory. I got the plenty of evidence. I'm not sure. That's all. <laughs> I just don't see the evidence. There's a lot of killing going on, according to us. So it's not like human nature saying, you know, we can't kill people in the name. No, we got two big, two big pieces of evidence. One, the, the totally unprecedented absence of uh, international war between developed states. In, a, in Europe, which used to be the most warlike continent in the world, and then the rest is basically this remarkable decline lately. Uh, the first part I'm pretty, as I say, pretty confident of. This, you know, is speculative, and it may be just sort of a, you know, a dip before it bounces back. Uh, but um, if I've identified the reason for this right, I think we're in pretty good shape on that. So I'm reasonably optimistic, but I'm certainly not, you know, going to predict it to 100%. I was rooting around the internet this afternoon to see what I would say, and I saw a quote by McGeorge Bundy that said, uh, say what you will about John Mueller, he makes you think. <laughs> and John, I want to thank you uh, for making us think tonight and all the time. It's great to have you here at Bershon. I want to thank all of you for coming, and we'll be back again in February, so have a safe trip home. Thank you, Jeffrey, for your very nice comment.
Thank you.